The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com disclosures. I'm Frank Chen, and today I'm delighted to be here with Scott Cooper. Thank you for having me. Scott and I have known each other for 15 years, maybe longer. Maybe longer than that, We were yeah. in the Hard Things book, because we were both at <laughs> LoudCloud. And uh, we've been here at Andreessen Horowitz. This is our 10th year. Yeah. Yeah. Is this the longest you've ever held a job? Uh, it is, now that I think about it, yeah. right. Yeah, it I mean, LoudCloud ops were, if you include the HP acquisition, but, That's but true. never like quite got to 10 years, together. right? Yeah, yeah, but almost, yeah. yeah 10 years at yeah. a single entity. It's like the longest for me. Yeah. So. Um, so Scott is our managing partner. He was the first employee at Andreessen Horowitz. He is also my boss, so this is great that you're here. Um, somehow in the midst of a fundraise and managing the firm, you went off and wrote a book. <laughs> and so we'll talk a little bit about I, I that try, today. I try to stay busy, right, yeah. <laughs> um, so here's what we're gonna do today. I'm gonna pretend to be a startup CEO who is raising money and I get a free reign at asking any question I want about the fundraising process, about how I should think about how much to raise and who I'm working with. And Scott has promised to candidly answer all these questions. So this should be a huge treat for people who are thinking about raising money for their own startup. We also have some questions from Twitter that we're gonna interleave into this conversation. So it's not just me, Scott hosted a Twitter Ask Me Anything this morning, and we had some questions come up that uh, we wanted to treat with a little more depth, and uh, there were some questions we couldn't get to. Yeah. So yeah. we're gonna wrap that all into a package here. The three segments that we're gonna use to talk about the startup journey are basically the, the chapters in a startup. So we're gonna talk about how do I figure out which venture capitalist I wanna work with, yeah. how do I raise money, and then how do I build my company? So after the fundraise, the venture capitalist typically takes a board seat and then our relationship changes, so we'll sort of ask questions about that too. So you ready? like fun. You ready? ready? All right. Let's do it. Fantastic. So maybe let's start at the very, very top, and this is about sort of how do you pick a VC to work with. Like, why does the world need VCs? This is also <laughs> a question that we got on Twitter. Like, how are the VCs uh, helping the world address the, the most urgent problems that the world has? Yeah, so it's funny. So there was a time where the world needed VCs because the VCs had the money, right? And so, if you needed, you know, if you needed to actually raise money, uh, that was definitely the way to go. And that was kind of most of actually the first 30, 40 years of venture capital from kind of early 1970s to mid 2000s. I think was characterized by that. You know, capital was scarce. The VCs had it, and therefore, you went to the VCs to get the money. Yeah, and uh, so the banks wouldn't lend it to you. That's for, right. For yeah. That. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I mean, think of it. If we even back up a step, right? Think of VC almost. I think of it as. It's capital, it's risk capital that kind of has to exist because there aren't alternative forms of financing that will actually finance those types of businesses. So you're right, you know, we do have these things called banks and they do things called loans. Right. Uh, and there are plenty of businesses where people might say, hey, great, that's a perfectly way to, good way to finance the company. The, the problem with loans is number one is obviously there's some risky categories like startups in general that you know, they generally don't like. And then two is it's not permanent capital, right? So the idea of a loan, of course, is you have it for a period of time. Mm -hmm. You pay some interest on it, and then you gotta obviously give it back. And the theory of VC financing is, number one, to finance those very risky assets, but also to be able to kind of be what we call permanent capital in the business, right? So that, you know, you never have to give it back to me. I hope, of course, that you go public or something happens and I earn a return on that money, but, you know, you don't have to think, hey, five years from now, just when my business is starting to get going, do I have to kind of come out of pocket and basically repay that money? Mm, got it. 
Um, so let's follow the money trail. So if we need VCs to fund things that banks won't fund, yeah. uh, where do we get our money? Where? Yeah. yeah. So we are lucky enough to have what we call limited partners. Mm -hmm. And there's a bunch of categories, but probably the most prevalent and the easiest examples are you know, university endowments. Mm -hmm. So we're sitting here on Sand Hill Road. Uh, Stanford is just down the road from us. So Stanford has an endowment where you know, graduates have over time given money to. And the goal of that endowment is how do I earn a return on that money? Because I need to be able to help you know, subsidize the high costs of college education and make sure that the professors are all taken care of. And so they build a whole portfolio of which venture capital is one component. Mm -hmm. But venture capital is a very important component for them because it's kind of their major high risk, high growth, high returning asset category. So mm -hmm. if you look at Stanford or you look at Yale, what they're saying is, hey, look, I need to earn 25, 30% annualized returns on this money. Venture capital is one way where I can put a portion of my money there. I'll then put some money in stocks and bonds and things of that sort as well. Mm -hmm. But uh, basically they effectively think of it as they lend us the money we take that money, invest in great entrepreneurs like yourself, and then hopefully some, some uh, years down the road, we give them the money back with some interest. Mm. And the surprising thing is that they have a pretty big stake in private equity and venture capital, right, yeah. if they think about portfolio. And so maybe talk about their portfolio construction yep. and sort of how much like a Yale or a Stanford would actually allocate to private equity. Yeah, so you know, we talked about this a little bit in the book, but you mm -hmm. know, Yale was really kind of you know, the founder of what a lot of people call kind of the modern endowment theory model, and the whole idea behind that is to have lots of different asset classes to provide diversity, and an asset class just means you know something to which you invest in, right? So it could be real estate, it could be literally like timber or oil and gas, mm. uh, it could be public stocks, it could be bonds, and venture capital and private equity obviously are a component of it. Mm -hmm. And what Dave Swenson, who's the person who you know kind of has has run the Yale endowment for I think almost 30 years now, his basic innovation was he said, look. If I could find places where there is imperfect information in the markets, there's an opportunity for managers in those markets to hopefully earn excess returns than you otherwise might be able to earn if you're just investing in public stocks. And so he said, look, what people like Yale and other endowments have is we have the benefit of time, which is the goal is for Yale to be existing in perpetuity. And every year, of course, he has to give some money to the university to kind of pay for annual expenses, but he's got a 30 plus billion dollar kind of you know, endowment that can live for the next you know, 100 plus years. And so that allows him to kind of invest in things like venture, which will take a long time for them to realize, but in return, that gives him exposure to hopefully imperfect markets that give him an opportunity for return that's much higher than other assets. Yeah. So he might have, for private equity you know, and venture, venture's probably almost 18, 20% of his assets. Wow. And then if you layer on other private assets, he probably has you know, kind of 40 plus percent, maybe mm. even 50% of his assets in the private markets. And you know he's, that's a little bit you know higher than others, but the idea is he's just looking for abnormal returns, mm. and he thinks the private markets is a great place to get it. Yeah. So forty percent seems super high. That's great news for an entrepreneur because not only does David Swenson have a lot of Yale's management money tied up in this asset class, but people who have emulated Yale's that's exactly portfolio right. strategy have also poured in money, and so as a result, you're a direct beneficiary That's exactly from David right. Swenson yeah. saying 40% of my money needs to go into private equity. Yeah, so right. and, it's, and uh, you know, there's a historical uh, you know, uh, anomaly here, which was in the, you know, before the kind of mid-1970s, you know, institutional asset managers like Yale actually were prohibited from being able to invest in assets like venture capital that were considered too risky. Mm. And uh, you know, kind of there were a lot of changes um, that came along the way, but basically kind of there was this thing called the prudent man rule, which came in and said, hey, 
we think it's actually reasonable for pensions and other people to invest in these assets as long as they do it, of course, in a reasonable way. And that really opened up the, the floodgates kind of in the mid and late 1970s to venture and private equity as a, as a broad institutional asset class. And yeah, you're right, we've been the beneficiary of that for the past 40 years. Yeah. Great. So there's a pool of money, yeah. and then what David is chasing, and all the fund managers like David, is they're chasing um, asset, uh, sort of outsized returns, Correct. uncorrelated with public stock market or sort of you know other asset classes. Sure. So how does it work? How did the great venture funds make their money? And let's talk a little bit about sort of batting average yeah. and, and slugging yeah, percentage. Sure. Yeah. So we we use this baseball analogy yeah. inside the uh, uh, inside the book, but. Uh, the basic way to think about a venture portfolio is, uh, you know, about half, 40 to 50 percent of what we do, we're going to get wrong. And there's this very uh, euphemistic word that we have in this business, which I know you and I have talked about, called "you have an impaired asset," which is a very polite way of basically saying you lost all your money, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. But but it sounds much better to say it's impaired. Right. So you got 40, 50 percent. That's for all intents and purposes a zero. And then you've probably got 20 to 30% where you make a little bit of money, right? You might make, make get your money back, you might make two times your money, three times your money. That's a lot more fun. Yeah. But if you do the math, right, if you've got 50% at zero and you know, call it 30% at 2x, you can tell you're still not even back to one yet, right? You're yeah. still kind of you've negative. You've not filled the pothole that's exactly that you created right. for still, yourself by wiping out 40% exactly of your portfolio right. yeah. dollars. Yeah. So basically what that means is the way this business works, the difference between success or failure in this business means you've got 10 or 20% left of your investments that need to basically generate you know, 90% of your returns. And mm-hmm. so you have to find a Facebook or a Google or a Twitter or an Instacart or Airbnb where you can earn 10, 20, 50, 100 times your money. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a very kind of skewed distribution, right? So unlike uh, you know, kind of a normal distribution, right, where things are kind of you know, normally distributed around a bell curve, you will hear people talk about the concept of a power law curve mm-hmm. for venture capital, right? Which basically just means you have very small number of you know n companies mm-hmm. that will drive the very very large portion of returns, and then this very long tail, quite frankly, of companies unfortunately that won't move the needle on your economics. Mm-hmm. Got it. So let's turn that into concrete advice for me as yep. the startup CEO. So what type of business is yeah. going to be attracted to somebody who's optimizing their portfolio for sort of slugging percentage? Yeah, so that's the right way to think about it, right? So you know, what, what you, know, you as an entrepreneur need to understand is what are the incentives that I have based upon the incentives that my, my investors have given me, which is exactly that, which is you know, to continue the baseball analogy, I need to swing for the fences, I need to try and hit a home run, yeah. right? And so... For you to determine whether venture capital is right for you, you have to decide, okay, is that what I'm signed up for, right? Is there is the market I'm going after big enough to be able to sustain a company like that? Yeah. And then even if it is, on a personal level, is that the kind of business you want to grow, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe you decide, hey, you know what? I can build a really nice business here, and in two years, Google will come along and buy it for 30 or 40 or $50 million, and that's a life-changing event for me and my family. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a perfectly fine outcome. There's, you know, there's, there's no normative uh, you know, kind of reason why you shouldn't do that. But that's probably not the kind of alignment of interest that you would have if you took venture capital. Mm. Uh, the venture capitalists would probably be disappointed with that outcome, and they would want you to kind of be playing for a much bigger opportunity and a bigger uh, long-term vision. Got it. So the reason that they come to my board meetings and say faster growth, higher margins, is right, right because they're trying to get the company to be as valuable as possible because they need like a huge Facebook stock return to cover up for all the mistakes they That's made. That's exactly right. So, you know, we unfortunately, we, we don't necessarily know which of the companies at the beginning are going to turn out to be in that upper right quadrant of yep. returns. And so, you know, everything is kind of option value from a, you know, a venture capitalist perspective. And so they will, you know, be encouraging you to kind of try to ultimately find ways to get your company into that return profile. Okay. 
So it's important for me to understand that as I go fundraising the VC. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Which is there's going to be a situation where our interests don't align if I don't want to build one of these enormous companies. That's right. Yeah. Right. Exactly right. Yeah. So does it matter when I go raise money with a fund? And here I want to talk about the J curve, right? Sure. So maybe explain the J curve and then let's yeah. talk about whether it's important that I understand that. Sure. So the J curve, uh, and you'll see a beautiful picture of it in the book, is literally looks like a J, which means you basically kind of have this dip. And then you know it comes up, right? And so the concept of the J curve is that in the early years of a fund, uh, we are investing money. So if you're an investor, if you're a limited partner in my fund, you have negative cash flow. So I'm asking you to give me money so that I can go and invest in what I hope is going to be the next Facebook or Google or Twitter. Mm -hmm. And so from your perspective, you are in the bottom shallow end of that J curve where you are negative in terms of the cash. We hope after three, four, five years, you kind of cross the x-axis and start to generate positive returns from a cash perspective. So uh, what that means is it's, it's mostly relevant for limited partners. It has probably less relevance for an entrepreneur. The only relevance for an entrepreneur is you want to have a general sense of where in the fund uh, you are and, the, and the, uh, the investor is when you take their money. So for example, if these funds tend to be 10-year lives, right? Mm -hmm. So at the early uh, days of the fund, if I invest in you and then two years from now you have to raise money again or four years from now, I probably still have some money left over in my fund because I'm, I'm at the relative early stages of the fund. Whereas you know, if you come in and you're five or six of my fund, I might have already invested 90% of the capital and so when your next round of financing comes up, maybe mm -hmm. I'm out of money, right? Mm -hmm. And so the J curve probably is less relevant for you, but this concept of kind of where are you in the time diversity of the fund mm -hmm. is a relevant thing as an entrepreneur for you to at least have a sense of so you know kind of how long staying the financial power might be of that uh, venture partner. Got it. So sort of the, the further along you are, the more risky it is for me and that you might run out of money for my next round. That's right. Right, And then all the other investors will start asking, hey, why is Andreessen Horowitz not filling up this that's round? That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay, and so look, that's hopefully, the risk. hopefully if we're doing our job well, we, go, we will raise another fund, right? So we might you know, have money now from a new fund to invest. But you know, none of that's guaranteed, of course, and so it's just it's something to think about, you know, right. kind of at the margin as you, as uh, you know you consider your venture partner. Yeah, you get money from your limited partners like yep. university endowments. The general partners do they also invest money in the firm, and do I need to know how much they've invested? Do I care? Yeah. Or do I not care? Yeah, I think the to answer your second question, you know, I'm not sure you care that mm -hmm. much. Um, the general partners typically do invest. It ranges anywhere from, you know, on the low end, 1% of the fund mm -hmm. will come from general partners. Some funds, it will be as high as 5%. Mm -hmm. So it's meaningful. Um, yeah. Again, it's a little bit more the LPs care about it because they want to make sure, hey, you've got some kind of, you know, uh, stake in the game here. Yeah. And you're not, you know, just relying on other people's money, but you also actually have, you know, yeah. kind of your own money at risk as well. Yeah. And as, as funds tend to get older and more mature, firms, I should say, mm -hmm. and, you know, hopefully the partners have done well and they've, you know, accrued some financial profits themselves, mm -hmm. then, you know, you tend to kind of see that 1% kind of shift up more over time as, mm -hmm. you know, increasingly larger percentages of the, you know, financial well-being of those partners goes into the fund. Yeah. So in theory, a general partner who has, who has to fund 5% of a fund has more skin in the game. But you're saying, I, as an entrepreneur, I, I shouldn't overweight that factor yeah, when I'm raising I wouldn't, money? Yeah, I wouldn't overweight it too much. Number mm -hmm. one, uh, you, you, may, you certainly don't. There's no public place for you to find it, quite frankly. Right. You can always ask your venture capitalists about it. You might be one of the few people, though, who've ever asked them that question. <laughs> right. uh, it does go, you know, I think where it's relevant as an entrepreneur is it goes a little bit too kind of 
the staying power of the firm and how likely are they to be able to raise another fund, right? So mm-hmm. the more the LPs feel like they're aligned and you know, kind of, you know, they they have some skin in the game, the more likely, you know, of course, the LPs will also think this is a long-term partnership that we want to continue investing in. That's probably again the only kind of potential, you know, impact as an entrepreneur that that piece of information might provide. Yeah. Now, aside from how much of their own personal money they have in a yeah. fund, there's also this notion you introduce in the book of GPs with economic interest only yep. versus GPs with governance interest in sort of the management company around yep. the fund. Does that matter to me? Do I need to pick only one or the other, or am I indifferent? I think the most important thing, uh, I think there is some relevance, but I'd say the most important thing is more of a meta point, which is, uh, you know, you and I both come from the enterprise software world, right? And for any of your our viewers here who you know are used to enterprise selling, there's always this concept of enterprise selling of kind of, you know, who is your economic buyer, you know, who is your kind of champion or your sponsor of the organization, and, you know, ultimately who's the decision maker, right? And so the way I would think about venture capital is in the same, was in the same way, which is there may be different partners who play different roles as it relates to your fundraising process. So ultimately, part of your job is to map the firm and understand, okay, what is the decision-making process? So at some firms, for example, maybe you know, there's certain senior partners who always have to sign off on a deal to get something done. You know, here at Andreessen Horowitz, we do things differently, which is as long as people follow the process you know, consistently, you know, any single general partner has the ability to ultimately make a decision uh, mm-hmm. to invest and go on the board of a company. But understanding that's important, you know, understanding kind of, you know, if there are differences. So some people, you know, kind of use the term general partner to encompass, you know, uh, different job categories. You know, for example, here at Andreessen uh, and Horowitz, a general partner to us means you can write a check and you can sit on a board. And so if you understand that based on the different firms you interact with, you'll understand kind of the selling process mm-hmm. in a way that I think will make it more effective for you to try to close your deal. Yeah, so it is like enterprise sales. You yeah. have to identify who you're working with, yeah. what, are the, what budget do they have, who owns the budget. That's exactly right, right. yeah. Uh, rather than sort of narrowly asking the question, do they have governance rights in the management com- that, the yeah. company, that's yeah. kind of their reality. Yeah. I mean, that, that's more, quite frankly, sometimes a, that's more a symptom of how the firm is set up, but I think if you, if you understand the decision-making process, then that will incorporate all the information you really need to know. Yeah. And then compare and contrast for me a little of the, um, I'm going to do Silicon Valley financial investors like yep. us, right, yep. versus sort of other categories. So maybe talk a little bit about how are corporate venture capital yep. uh, general partners incented and is it different? Like they probably don't have limited partners, right, because the capital probably comes from their corporation. Right. And so yep. what other incentive differences are there and how should I think about when do I put those guys on the cap table, Absolutely. If, if ever? Yeah, so corporate venture capital actually over the years has grown a lot. So kind of, you know, it was never that prominent. I don't know the exact numbers today, but something like 15, 20% of deals often have a corporate partner in them. So it's grown a lot over the last 10 years. Um, And so the answer to your question is, look, they vary a little bit. So some of them, uh, you know, like a Google Ventures, for example, is a a corporate VC. Uh, You know, Google is their only limited partner in that sense. And so, yeah, you're right. They don't have to go raise money. Some corporate venture uh, firms do have some external uh, LPs, but most of them are kind of captive to the corporation they do. So it does change the incentive structure for them, right? Because oftentimes they're not purely financial investors, right? So they clearly don't want to lose money and they'd like to obviously earn a living on the the profits from the business. But ultimately it's a diversification strategy for the firm Mm -hmm. to say, hey, look, there's new technologies that could come up and impact our business. This is a way for us to kind of keep an eye on that technology. Oftentimes it's a pipeline for business development or even M&A opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's good and valid reasons to take corporate venture capital. The big advice that we often give um, our companies is the thing you want to be careful about is you don't want to sell your business to a corporate 
before you've actually received an acquisition premium for that. And what we mean by that is, right, if I allow them to invest at a point where they own so much of the company that, quite frankly, it almost makes it impossible, whether legally or just from an external perception perspective, mm -hmm. that nobody else could ever buy my business, you know, I've essentially kind of almost sold the company without, quite frankly, getting paid, you know, what you would expect to get paid for the company. Mm -hmm. So I think they can be great partners with, you know, kind of more limited economic interests. Mm -hmm. You want to make sure they don't have any rights, right, that would kind of uh, you know, kind of cause, again, other companies that, you know, uh, might be interested in the company over time, either from a partnering or an acquisition perspective, to mm. kind of be scared away. But but uh, in that context, they can be very good partners. Mm. So in my seat as the startup CEO, it sounds like the right order, the optimal ordering, if I'm trying to build, like, a, the biggest possible company that I can, is try to find a financial investor first who yep. doesn't, who's not trying to buy me, right? They're just trying to uh, give me fuel so I can build. And then later, maybe... Uh, find a corporate investor or a set of corporate investors who can go, go together into yeah. a round. I think that's right. Or I think the, the third alternative is you could couple a corporate investor with financial investors, but probably just size them appropriately, right? Where you yeah. might want to have kind of the financial investor have a slightly bigger stake. And again, make sure that the corporate investor doesn't have rights that might kind of deter, you know, future corporates from you know, partnering or potentially being an acquisition partner down the right. line. Keeps my flexibility as open That's as possible. Right. That's right. exactly right. Yeah. Option value high. Yeah. So related question from Twitter. So what are the return on investment pressures and time horizons for corporate VCs? And yeah. how do they differ from the, the ones you and I have at A16? Yeah, they're definitely different. So the way ours work, right, just to understand it is our funds tend to be about 10 years long, right, as you know. Yeah. Uh, and to be successful in this business over the long term, you probably need to return two and a half to three times the money that the LPs give you mm. over that 10-year period. And 10 years is a little bit of an inside joke in this industry because actually even though mm. funds legally are supposed to expire after 10 years, yeah. uh, they often go 12, 13, 15 years. So mm. but let's, let's, uh, let's keep the fiction and, and stick with 10. So over 10 years, you know, we need to basically generate those kinds of returns. So mm. it matters, it goes back to the question you and I talked about earlier, it matters a little bit about where are we in the fund when I invest in your company? Mm. Because again, if I invest in your company late in my fund cycle, I might have pressure to be able to kind of in a, in a relatively short number of years before my fund expires to be able to show some results from that. And so that could have an impact. The corporate partners, corporate venture partners tend not to have those constraints because they don't have to raise typically fund by fund. They typically just are investing off and off the balance sheet of the corporation. And so therefore arbitrary timelines are, are less relevant. And as we talked about earlier, uh, they certainly have some financial pressures, right? I mean, I'd be hard-pressed, you think, for a corporate VC to stay in business if they always lost money on their investments. <laughs> but the primary goal in many cases is kind of not pure profit maximization, but strategic maximization. And so there's other ways that they can effectively kind of generate a profit that don't have the same kind of financial constraints that a, that a pure financial investor would have. Got it. And then two more questions from Twitter to sort of round out this section of, you know, how do VCs work and how do I pick one? Yep. Uh, here's a question from Varun on Twitter. What's the value of a specific advice and dedicated one-on-one -on -one help from a VC? Uh, yep. Since, like, look, you can crowdsource all this stuff, right? <laughs> I can do a crypto IPO and then yeah, I can, like, exactly. get some advice from Twitter and, like, That's why right. do I need you? That's right. <laughs> well, it's funny. I talked about this in the book, uh, and you probably remember this quote. Uh, you know, our partner Mark has always kind of asked us the question, are, are we the last dinosaurs, basically, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, we think we've got this incredibly advanced venture capital model, and, yeah. you know, maybe we're just about to, you know, kind of be extinct as, as we're right. the, the meteors are coming. That's right. <laughs> and so I, I think it does point to a very fundamental question that the, the you know, the Twitter user is asking, which is, what is the role of venture capital, right? And mm -hmm. so, look, my very simple answer is, 
you know, we used to live in a world, as we talked about at the beginning here, where the venture capitalists had the money, and that was, you know, a very defined role they had, which is if you wanted the money, you had to go there. Today, look, money is, is you know, we're awash in money, right? And there's venture capitalists, there's hedge funds. There'll probably always be someone else who's got more money than do we and a lower cost of capital. Uh, and so to me, the answer as to whether it's ICOs or crowdfund or anything else, whether those exist and whether venture capital in its current incarnation exists, to me, is a really a function of whether venture provides something other than capital. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously, you know, since you, you've been here since the beginning, you know, the whole way we set up Andreessen Horowitz, the way we did was to kind of invest in, you know, 100 plus people in addition to our investing team who day in and day out think about how can we be valuable to our companies. And, you know, our, my personal view, and obviously we live this every day in the firm, is, you know, for venture to be a viable entity for the next 10, 20, 30 years, uh, capital alone is not a differentiator. And, you know, we will all have to find uh, other ways to provide value, and so I think the to the to the you know Twitter person's question, uh, he's right, which is if we don't do anything else, then you're right, we're no different than anyone else, and you probably don't need us, and you know it's incumbent upon us to demonstrate that we actually have some other form of value. Perfect. And then last question in this section, broad strokes, how does the VC game look different in ten years? We've been doing it for ten. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're looking forward to the next ten. Yeah. So I think if you look at the last 10, the biggest thing that happened was the introduction of seed as its own kind of investable category. Mm. And, uh, you know, for people who are old enough to remember, you'll remember these things called angels, mm-hmm. which were actually people who wrote money out of their own checkbooks. Right. Uh, you know, Ron Conway right. being a very famous one. That's and even, angel. you know, Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz, before right. they started the firm here, were doing that on their own. Um, that really changed the whole competitive dynamic. I think for the next 10 years, I think you have a couple things that are going to happen. Number one is I think the competitive dynamic is going to continue to get even more challenging. Uh, partly because of this issue we talked about, that money is not scarce, there's plenty of availability capital. Um, I think the other phenomenon we've seen, which I think is gonna continue, is this idea of companies staying private much longer. Uh, And so it used to be that companies would go public six, six and a half years after they were started, now it's Mm -hmm. 10, 12 years. I don't see any reason to believe that's gonna change. And I think the third big thing that we're gonna see over the next 10 years is more of a blending of private and public markets. So today you have this interesting dichotomy, which is you're private, you're private, you're private, and then we flip a switch and all of a sudden, you know, you're public and mm. you know you have a stock price and you have new investors and you know we ring the bell at the at the stock exchange, all right. these fun things. Um, I think there is a continuum that we're already starting to see, and I, I would expect over the next 10 years, you will see a more active secondary market, which means a resale market for private stock mm. that happens in the private markets, but that is a little bit, you know, may have some elements of regulation, regulation might look a little bit like a public market, but not quite all the way there, mm. and so that we have more of a continuum of a life cycle of companies as opposed to kind of this very This climactic sharp, event. Exactly, right. right the yeah. day of where everybody takes the pictures. Yeah, right? exactly. So, right. Yeah. All right, so hopefully that gives you a great sense of how venture capitalists work, what their incentives are, and this is gonna help you pick the right venture capitalist for you if you decide venture capital is the right way to put money into your company. And now we're gonna move on to part two, which is about fundraising and actually getting and negotiating term sheets. So for those of you that will join us for part two, we'll see you there.